Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel and in the Sermon on the Mount. Hear the words of your Savior Jesus. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to receive it, to internalize it, to meditate on it, and to obey it. Father, cause us to submit to you uh, and, to, and to walk in your way and to please you in all things. Deliver us from error today. Help me to articulate these things clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we consider the thousands of wars that have been th fought throughout the course of human history, we may assume that there had to have been some really good reasons for fighting the overwhelming majority of those wars. Some wrong had to be made right, some evil needed to be corrected, something precious needed to be restored or preserved or protected. The horrible human expense of going to war must be commensurate to the offense, we would assume. But that's simply not the case. It's not the case that wars are started always for good or logical reasons. There are wars in history that have begun for really silly inconsequential reasons. For example, there was the Pastry War of 1838. This is a real thing. You can look this up. The Pastry War of 1838 between Mexico and France. I bet you didn't even know Mexico and France had problems with each other, but they did for a long time. When Mexico became an independent nation, there was, a, there was constant fighting within Mexico as various factions were competing to control the new country. And in the course of this violence, the bakery of a French pastry chef who was living and working right outside of Mexico City, his bakery was looted, vandalized, and several of his cakes were stolen. So he appealed to the Mexican government for relief and for justice, but he was turned away. He was ignored. And so the French baker, as a French citizen, appealed directly to his king. He wrote a letter to King Louis-Philippe in France, who was already upset with Mexico and Spain over a lot of other things, and thought, well, this is just the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to blockade the Gulf of Mexico, and nothing's getting in, and nothing's getting out until they repay that baker and compensate him for his lost cakes. Well, they, he did that. The French king blockaded the Gulf of Mexico, and Mexico didn't budge. They're not compensating. They're not doing anything uh, for the baker. They did not comply. So the French began bombarding cities and forts along the coastline. And eventually, the, the French army occupied the city of Veracruz, Mexico. France did not withdraw their troops until a treaty was signed wherein the Mexican government promised to compensate the French citizens living around Mexico City 
promised to compensate them with 600,000 pesos. Now, I'm not an economist or a Mexican economist, but that sounds like a lot of pesos, 600,000 pesos, and those are 1838 pesos. So uh, they were promised this uh, compensation. And so the French said, well, that sounds good to us, and they departed. But that amount was never paid. And that led to another French invasion of Mexico in 1861. And before it was over with, there were about 350 casualties on both sides. You think maybe they just could have compensated the man for his pettifors or his croissants or whatever he was baking. Uh, just, just compensate the baker. We don't have to escalate this. But it's a key feature of our fallen human nature to escalate offenses. Big conflicts almost always begin with petty annoyances. We strike back. We get even. It starts with cakes and it ends with casualties. We want to make others suffer as much as we have suffered. And we want to do unto others worse than they did unto us. One of the oldest songs recorded in the Bible is the song of Lamech. You're probably familiar with it from Genesis chapter 4, where this man uh, confesses to essentially murder. He tells his wives to listen to him. Lamech is a descendant of Cain. And he says, wives, hear my voice. I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventyfold. Lamech there confesses to a crime. He says, a young man wounded me and I have killed him. Now, if anybody wants a piece of me, come and get it. You're going to get worse. If anybody touches me, I will be further avenged. It's often assumed that the Bible supports this kind of thing, that the ancient principle in God's law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, uh, it's assumed that that's supportive of this violence and revenge, that if somebody hurts you, you have a right, you have even a duty to go personally make them pay. You must execute your own justice, and that's how you ensure that no one ever messes with you, just like Lamech said. But is that what God's law teaches? That, that it's up to you to exact your own brutal revenge when you have been offended or injured. Show no mercy, make them suffer the way that you have suffered. Is that what, is that what God's law is all about? Well, the answer is no. That's a gross misunderstanding for at least three reasons. First of all, that when God gives his laws, and of course, that law that's quoted by Jesus is, is in uh, God's law, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, but these laws are provided within the context of an orderly governed society. Back in the wilderness, Moses chose capable men to be rulers over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And then when uh, Israel is established in the land, there are elders in all of the cities. In all the city gates, there are elders who can judge and help you determine uh, what's right and what's wrong and apply God's law to situations to be an authority. And then God also gave the Levites to Israel to understand, to study, to apply God's law, to be the authority on what God's law had said and to disciple Israel in just judgment. And so in Israel, if a serious crime were committed, there were guidelines in place for establishing the facts of the case. The testimony of one witness was not sufficient. 
There would have to be two or three to establish the, the facts of the case. A careful investigation was required. And so if someone is bringing a false charge, the penalty would have fallen to the uh, false accuser that, that would have been uh, on, the, on the convicted one. Uh, that, that penalty, if you, if you brought a fa false charge, the, the penalty for the crime that you accused the other of would fall on your own head. So these laws of retributive justice were not given to individuals. They were given to the society. In other words, you don't carry out your own revenge. You plead your case to the judges. You plead your case to the elders. You make your appeals. And if that doesn't work out, then you appeal to heaven. You appeal to God's throne of judgment. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No one gets away with anything. And this is a principle to keep and hang over every discussion that we have about law and order and justice. It is this, that every man must face and appear before God's throne of judgment. And he is a perfect judge. He sees everything. He hears everything. He knows everything. Nobody gets away with anything. We wring our hands and we get super upset that it looks like evil men are getting away with it. And that's just false. No one gets away with anything. Remember that and hang that over the rest of our study and rest of our discussion. So there are times where We've exhausted all efforts to appeal to earthly authorities, and then we must make our appeal to God. But an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is not an invitation to take matters into your own hands. God's law does not promote personal retaliatory justice. And I know that wipes out a lot of 1980s and 1990s action films that if we were to just to take personal justice and personal revenge out of it, it struck me just uh, in, 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 uh, earlier this morning that there was actually a, a Chuck Norris movie named An Eye for an Eye uh, where he took revenge. Don't watch it. It's terrible. Um, no, it's great. It's a classic. Go watch it. I don't care. It's, it's, it's wonderful. No, don't ever take movie recommendations from me at all. Um, but that's the first mistake is to assume that uh, this, this was uh, an invitation to personal retaliatory justice. That's the first thing. The second misunderstanding of this eye for an eye principle is, is that it's an invitation or a mandate to escalate an injury or an offense when it's the exact opposite of that. Uh, the, the eye for an eye principle is a limitation on punitive judgments. If someone takes an eye, then all you can take is an eye or the monetary value or the equivalent of an eye. If someone takes a tooth, the judgment and the punishment is limited to a tooth. Now, there's no evidence in the scriptures that anyone was actually ordered to be maimed uh, as punishment for a crime. There were capital crimes listed in God's law, which required the death penalty for the guilty, but for lesser offenses, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle puts limits on what can be done to the offender. So for example, if someone carelessly uh, runs over your foot with their ox cart and they break several toes, you don't respond by burning down their village. That's not how you respond to that. The punishment must fit the crime. And so God's law provides for proportional justice, which appropriately punishes the offender and pays suitable restitution to the victim 
of the crime. So first of all, uh, this principle is not for personal retaliatory justice. The second thing is not, it's not an invitation to escalate, it's an invitation or a, or a limit on what can be gained uh, in a judgment. And the third misunderstanding is that this eye for an eye provision completely summarizes everything that God's law has to say about how, to, how a justice system is ordered, as, as if this barbaric system uh, where grotesque punishments are demanded is what God established, and that there are these grotesque punishments for all sorts of crimes. But that view misses everything that God's law has to say about mercy. God's law was not barbaric. It was not cruel. It was not merciless. In Leviticus 19, 18, God says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God's law is shot through with mercy. In Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In Proverbs 24, 29, do not say I will do to him just as he has done to me. Do not say that you're going to punish your enemy personally. God says, I will render, according, uh, I, I will re render to man according to his work. God will judge. So it's an error to assume that the Old Testament sets up this kind of savage, barbaric, justice system. And then Jesus, who is the pacifist, comes along and makes it all nice, that he rounds off, off the corners and he sands it down and he makes it nicer. No, because God's law was not barbaric. God's law introduced limits and order to the ancient world and to sinful humanity. God's law was merciful. And when Jesus comes, we've read it. Over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus comes, he says, I'm not here to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He comes to call men to obey his father's law, which is merciful. It is right. It is just. It's not savage and barbaric. And that's been the theme of our, our study on the Sermon on the Mount so far. There are those in Israel who have taken it upon themselves to be the authorities on the law. Uh, they're the teachers and preservers of the law, the, stri the scribes and Pharisees, but they've twisted God's law. They've added to it. They've mounted up ordinances and expectations that give a sense that they're serious about keeping God, God's law. It gives this veneer that uh, they're super righteous and super holy and, and super separate uh, from sinners. Uh, but in fact, what Jesus has shown us over the last several uh, passages that we've studied, Jesus has exposed them all as being lustful and murderous and the fact that you can't take them at their word. So Jesus tells his people, you don't act like them. Your righteousness must exceed their righteousness. And so with this, Jesus now turns to this problem of personal vengeance. It seems evident that the very same misunderstandings and misapplications that I just listed, they were all uh, present in Jesus's day. Daily life in Israel was consumed with feuding and contention. We see it in the chemistry between the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes and the Judeans and Samaritans and Galileans, all living under an oppressive Roman occupying uh, army. And these contentious dynamics play out in the crucifixion of Jesus. We see it all there. The persecution of the young church in the book of Acts. 
until it all boils over in a generation and results in Rome dropping the hammer on Jerusalem, utterly destroying it just to stop the constant fomenting of rebellion and unrest. This society that Jesus comes to was an environment ripe for the perpetuation of violence, cycles of insult and return of insult, vengeance and vendettas. And it wouldn't end until everyone was dead and the city of Jerusalem was a smoking crater. That's how it all ends. That's what they're headed for. And Jesus comes, he steps into the situation and he says, here's how you stop this. This is inevitable. This is coming if you keep doing what you're doing. Here's how my people can escape this. Here's how. Don't get caught up in these cycles of offense and violence and revenge. Once you start escalating, it doesn't stop. And so what Jesus provides is a different way of fulfilling his father's law. And even though the way that he goes about this is surprising and unexpected, he says, this is how my kingdom is going to run. Here's how my disciples respond. Put simply, my disciples <laughs> absorb offense. They de-escalate. Now, they're not passive. Uh, there's an active response to each insult that Jesus lists here, an active response that imposes a new way of thinking and a new way of living that breaks up old sinful patterns of vengeance. It introduces the reality and the possibility of forgiveness into these situations. So let's hear again what the Lord Jesus says <clears throat> from verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. What does he mean, don't resist an evil person? I tell you not to resist an evil person. Jesus resists evil. Jesus resists evil ones all the time. He resists the devil. He resists the scribes and the Pharisees. He resists all the evil in the world in his death and resurrection. Jesus spends his entire ministry resisting evil. So what can he mean here? Well, he doesn't leave it to our imagination for us to guess what kind of person he's talking about. He defines the very kind of evil person that he has in mind. It's the person who slaps you on the cheek. It's the person who sues for your shirt. It's the person who impresses upon you to go a mile or demands your property. And Jesus shows us how to deal with these kinds of evil men by a kind of resistance that doesn't escalate, it doesn't slap back, fight back, retaliate, but a response that is subversive and exposes the evil of the evil person. So let's look at each one of these. Verse 39, second part of verse 39. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Jesus is not um, prohibiting self-defense here. This is not a situation where your life is in danger. If somebody's smacking you or slapping you, that's not considered deadly force. What is this? This is an insult. We're in the territory of honor and dishonor here. Now, if you can try to imagine it, if you're getting slapped on the right cheek, you may be, be slapped by someone's left hand, right? If I'm facing you and you smack my right cheek, it may be with your left hand, and of course, um, Tradition says that their left hand, they use left hand for 
dirty jobs, uh, picking up dirty things or touching dirty things or whatever. You save your right hand, you keep your right hand clean for eating. And so if you use your right hand uh, to slap someone, it may be a, a shameful or unclean kind of thing if you're, if you're slapping somebody with your, with your left hand. The whole thing is, is associated with uncleanness. Or maybe if you're struck on your right cheek, you're being backhanded with the right hand by someone who is treating you like a servant or treating you like an inferior. Either way, it's insulting. It's meant to shame and to demean. So what do you do when someone insults you like this? Well, if you're applying an eye for an eye in a personal way, then you would return slap for slap. Uh, you slap me, I slap you back. A slap deserves a slap. Jesus transforms this, however, and he says, here's something. What if you accept the second slap rather than giving it? You take the punishment that the other person deserves. How would that change what they're trying to accomplish by insulting you? When you see someone mistreated like this, when, when you look at a, a bully uh, abusing someone, do you side with the bully or do you side with the one being bullied? Do you side with the oppressor or the oppressed? You see, the, the kind of response that Jesus calls for disarms the bully. It takes away all their ammunition. It subverts and unravels the expectation of revenge. Jesus gives another example. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your coat also, your cloak. Let him have your cloak also. Your tunic is like your shirt. Your cloak is your overcoat that keeps you warm. In Exodus 22, God forbids taking someone's coat, their overcoat, their cloak. You cannot take someone's cloak as pledge or collateral. God declares it's a clear sign of oppressive behavior to take someone's clothing. In fact, if for some reason you do take someone's coat as collateral, no matter what, you have to give it back to them at the end of the day. Uh, your, your cloak keeps you warm at night. You ball it up and you, you make a bed out of it or it's your, you know, it's your blanket at night. And so what God is saying is the garments of the poor, the clothing of the poor is not on the table for negotiation. God's law warns against those who would take your coat. Don't do this. Here, Jesus mentions the possibility that someone would sue you for your shirt. You see, this is not even a, a, a scenario that the law brings up. Uh, you, we're, we're concerned about our coat. Jesus says, somebody may sue you for your shirt. Who would do that? Who would say, I'm going to sue the shirt off your back? Who would do that? Well, only the most greedy and hard-hearted person. And Jesus said, if they sue you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. Give them your cloak as well. You're better off standing there in your underwear, absorbing the shame than getting back at them. And then he says this, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. In an occupied territory like Galilee, where Jesus is, is delivering the sermon, it would have been fairly common for Roman soldiers to push people around and make them do menial jobs for no pay, like carry burdens. I have to go to this other village. I got to go to this other town. I've got a lot of stuff to carry. Hey, you over there, come here, come here and carry my pack, carry my gear and walk with me. And uh, you're going to carry my burden. <clears throat> and so Jesus says, if someone imposes on you to walk with them a mile, don't grunt, 
Don't grumble. Don't connive to get back at them. Go two miles. And then Jesus says, give to him who asks from you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. If some authority commandeers your animal or your wagon or your tools, don't run away, don't hide, give it to him. Now, you've probably read this many times and you may have come away thinking that what Jesus is advocating in all of these various examples is a kind of passive non-resistance. That Jesus is saying, whatever anyone wants to do to you, you just have to take it. You just put up with it. Just get beaten up. Just grudgingly go along with whatever imposition, whatever injustice for the second mile, you know, gritting your teeth, boiling in bitterness and contempt the whole way, but not doing anything about it. That is not what Jesus is calling his disciples to. The scribes and Pharisees could have done that, and I'm sure they did plenty of times. But there's nothing redemptive about passive non-resistance. The Stoics could do that. Just, just accept oppression, just accept evil because you can't do anything about it. Jesus is not saying don't do anything. That's not what he's saying. If you read him saying that, you're misreading what he's saying. He's not saying don't do anything. He shows us how to act in a way that undoes the agenda of the oppressor. He teaches his disciples how to respond in surprising ways that shorts out or shuts down the cycle of vengeance. There aren't endless slaps back and forth. At most, there are two slaps, and the follower of Jesus absorbs them both, and it's over. Instead of seething in anger and plotting revenge, you go two miles, and it's over. You strip down to nothing, and you have nothing more to give. There's nothing else to do. Now, um, worldly wisdom would say, well, this robs the victim of dignity. But actually, it restores their dignity. Um, uh, rather than being the victim, the disciple of Jesus takes initiative, offers his cheek, gives his coat, keeps walking, gives what's demanded. So that, so that the one doing the oppressive behavior must reevaluate what he's doing. Am I really going to slap him again? Are you really going to do that? Am I really going to take his coat? Am I really going to force this cheerful guy to keep walking with me? I mean, he looks like he's having way too much fun here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the big, bad, oppressive Roman soldier, and, and uh, this, this is not supposed to be fun, but he seems to be enjoying this. What's going on there? Um, how satisfying is it to slap someone in the face who's asking to be slapped? Uh, see, the disciple of Jesus has taken the initiative out of the hands of the bully, and the bully persists in, the, in his behavior to his own hurt. If the bully persists, then he just further exposes himself. He takes on all the shame that's intended for his target. I know what you're thinking. I know that you're thinking of people who take and they take and they take, and they laugh and they, they hit you the second time. Or they laugh and they say, yeah, I'll take your coat too. And it's a big joke and it's really funny. Remember what I said about God's throne. This man is heaping judgment on himself. You aren't, you aren't. You're heaping blessing and you're responding to him in a way that is calling him to repentance. God is judge, God sees everything, God knows everything, God hears everything and that person will have to stand before his throne one day. Um, so keep that in mind. But in the meantime, you're responding in a way that turns everything around and calls the bully, calls the oppressor, calls the wicked to repentance for his behavior. 
Jesus continues to subvert all of our expectations in this next section where he commands us to love our enemies. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Now, notice right from the start, Jesus does not say, you don't have any enemies. You shouldn't have any enemies. Don't even think you have enemies. Are you paranoid? You don't have enemies. Jesus doesn't say that at all. Jesus recognizes your enemies are real. We do have enemies. Jesus has enemies. And if you follow the Lord Jesus and seek to obey his law, you are going to have enemies. There are people who will despise you for who you are and for the God that you serve and the way that you order and prioritize your life by heaven's order and priorities. You have enemies, but you don't have to be consumed with how much they hate you or how much you hate them. Psalm 139 talks about hatred of God's enemies. And we, we have to have Psalm 139 in the background for what Jesus says here. Listen to this from Psalm 139 verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Yahweh, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, there's so much to meditate on there. But first, this psalm, Psalm 139, is no refuge for those who say, love the sinner, hate the sin. David says, no, I hate the sinner. I, I hate the wicked. I hate those who hate you, O Lord. And he doesn't make any qualifications. He says, I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count God's enemies my enemies. David hates them not because they've caused him personal offense, not because they've inconvenienced him, he hates them because they've behaved wickedly and profane the name of Yahweh. That's why David hates them. And notice that David's response to this is not vengeance. It's not violence. He is appealing to God's heavenly law court. David is bringing his complaint to God. And then in his petition for God to deal with them, David makes a petition for God to deal with him. You see, uh, yeah, deal with them. Oh, and also while you're at it, God, deal with me. David says, search me, O God, and lead me to hate my sin the way I hate their sin. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is how David could say, my, my hatred is perfect hatred. My anger is perfect anger. It's mature. It's complete. Because I'm learning how to despise wickedness the way that God despises wickedness. Now have that in the back of your mind as you think back to the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say about his father's treatment of the wicked? How does God hate God's enemies? How does he treat his enemies? Well, Jesus says the sun rises on all of them. The rain falls on all of them. God is patient he is tender, he is kind, and God is merciful all the time. God is good to his enemies. And so Jesus says, if you're like God, 
you are going to be good to his enemies, the way that he treats his enemies. And Jesus says, be perfect the way that your father in heaven is perfect. Perfection doesn't mean sinlessness. Perfection means completeness. It means maturity. And and maturity in this respect means having the ability to not respond to evil with evil. Anybody can be wicked to their enemies. Jesus says that. Anybody can return reviling for reviling, blow for blow, slap for slap. Anybody can do that. How are you going to live in a way that disrupts the cycle of cruelty and spitefulness in the world? Well, you follow and you apply Jesus's words. You love God's enemies and your enemies. You bless them. You pray for them. You go out of your way to do good to those who hate you. You pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, by the way, this is not a uh, pragmatic strategy uh, for uh, manipulating people or manipulating relationships. This is not like re- relational jujitsu. This is not 4D chess where you're, you know, manipulating people to get something out of them. This is not mind games. That's not what Jesus is giving us. This is redemptive. Uh, this is being salt and light. This is introducing into relationships full of conflict the values of the kingdom. This is living out the kingdom. This is introducing the gospel to relationships where you have difficulty, where someone is insulting, offending, uh, and taking advantage of you. You see, it, it may have been a long time since you were literally slapped in the face, but life does bring us insults, big ones and small ones. People will and do falsely accuse you. People will twist your words They'll assign motives to you that you would never in a million years even consider. You would think, you don't know me at all if you think that's what I was after, because that's not at all anywhere near the truth. People will take from you and not be grateful. They'll take advantage of your kindness. They'll damage your property and act like it's not a big deal. They won't respect your time. They won't keep commitments. They'll be callously forgetful. They were they will overlook you. They'll overlook your contributions, overlook your needs and concerns. They'll say things that they think are funny, but which feel like barbs. They'll cajole and coerce and manipulate and criticize and overstep their bounds and walk all over you. And in the end, you may say, you know what? I wish you would have just slapped me. Because if you slapped me, I, I, I would have known how to respond to that. But I don't know how to respond the way you're behaving, the way you're acting. The response of Jesus is not to just passively let it wash over you. It's not to retaliate. It's not even to act like the insult or the offense didn't happen because it did. These are realities. By the way, in a few chapters, we're going to get to Matthew 18, where Jesus lays out an order for how to deal with grievous sin. So there are things you can't overlook. There are things that you must pursue uh, an, an amendment to, uh, a rectification to. There must be, uh, there must be uh, recompense for, for certain things. And, and Jesus does not ignore that. But with most offenses, most garden variety offenses, with small things, and especially with unbelievers, the way of the disciple of Jesus is to not escalate, to not retaliate, but to de-escalate, to wisely, carefully, skillfully absorb the shame in a way that defeats evil. When you feel the impulse to strike back, to do worse to the person who did you wrong, to get them to feel what you felt, 
That right there, when you want them to suffer as much as you suffer, that is that vengeful spirit right there. That's when you say, okay, what does it mean right now to turn the other cheek? What does it mean to go the second mile? What does it mean to give them my coat? What does that mean? What does that look like? Wisely, carefully consider Jesus's words here and pray for wisdom that you might do that. How do I de-escalate? How do I absorb rather than ramping it up? Well, Jesus shows us what this looks like. Again, he, he doesn't leave it to our imagination. He lives it out at his crucifixion. Jesus doesn't require anything of us that he's not willing to do himself. We heard the prophet Isaiah this morning, and John read it in the lectionary reading. Uh, Isaiah said, Yahweh has opened my ear. I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me. I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for Yahweh will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. That's the prophet Isaiah talking about Jesus and his suffering. And there, speaking as the suffering servant, Isaiah says, I know that God's judgment and his sovereignty is perfect. I know that he will vindicate me. Therefore, I can absorb whatever. I can take whatever because I know that we're all headed for God's judgment. And so Jesus was vindicated. Jesus was exalted and glorified. And Jesus tore down the kingdom of darkness by following the way that he outlines for us here. Jesus was struck on the face and slapped. Jesus was stripped and had his garments taken from him. Jesus was put on a forced march to Calvary carrying the cross. Jesus had his very life demanded of him and he laid it down willingly. Jesus prayed for his enemies just as he commanded us to do here. Jesus prayed for his enemies on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. You can look at these verses that we just read and you see an outline of what we're going to talk about on Good Friday. You see an outline of the suffering of Jesus. Slapped, stripped, forced to march, giving his life uh, and praying for his enemies. And Jesus did this for the redemption of the world. Not one moment was out of his control. Not one thing was out of his grasp. He was not a passive passenger. He controlled the whole way. Today is Palm Sunday, and we remember that just about three years after Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, he enters the city of Jerusalem. He's on a mission to do everything that he says here. And at no point, this is another important point. We'll close with this. At no point does Jesus defend himself. Throughout his whole trial and his suffering, he doesn't defend his own honor. He doesn't defend his own dignity. He lays that all down for his bride, for his people. He doesn't defend himself. He defends his father. He defends the spirit. He defends his bride. That seems to be a theme of the way the righteous behave throughout scripture. Do whatever you want to me. I don't care what you do to me. I will bear the insult. I'll bear the indignity. I'll absorb the shame. I'm not going to defend myself. My God will defend me. That's what Isaiah says. However, I will defend you. I will give up my life for you. I will come to your defense. I, I, and as my brother, as my sister, I'm certainly not going to exact revenge on you. If there's an offense between us that I can absorb, I'll absorb it. Love will cover it. I'm not going to hold on to it. I'm not going to nurse it. I'm not going to add it to my list so that one day I can bring it out and hurt you with it again. This is how we live together. We don't have to stand up for ourselves. This, this mentality, this worldly mentality of vengeance 
and vendettas is all based on personal dignity, personal honor, personal respect, and I can't have that insulted. I can't have that dishonored. You see, and that's all, that's all so worldly. That, the way that Jesus shows us how to live is that you don't have to stand up for yourself. We have the whole body. You're not alone. You have the whole body to stand up for you. Everything is headed for God's judgment. So we stand up for each other. We together defend the name of Jesus. We stand up for him and he defends us. We defend his name and his glory and he defends us and he does it by absorbing our shame he has absorbed our sin and our offense. And we'll continue to meditate on this as we head into Good Friday and Easter. But for now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word again. Please continue to help us to apply this by your spirit, to meditate on this, and to apply it correctly in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.